Let's just bow for a moment, shall we, and we'll pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the awesome privilege of being able to spend just a few moments looking into your word. And Father, in, in the words of an old term, I, I pray very simply that, Lord, Lord, speak to me, that I may speak in living echoes of thy tongue. Father, we pray that we would hear your voice speaking to us from your word. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. This afternoon, I want to direct your thoughts, our thoughts, to Matthew chapter 10. Um, it was a long chapter, that, wasn't it? Um, Paul said to Timothy in the New Testament that he was to, to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. And uh, it's, it's, great to, it's great to be in a church where the Bible is open and read and heard. And, uh, but we're going to think about Matthew chapter 10. This chapter in Matthew's Gospel marks a very important turning point because up to now you could be forgiven for thinking that the mission of Jesus is his and only his but here we see Jesus inviting his followers to participate in his mission. In our Bibles here, it says very simply at the head of this section, Jesus sends out the twelve. So far, we've seen a lot of Jesus doing things and Jesus saying things. And here in this chapter, the turning point is that he calls his twelve disciples to him and then he sends them out to do and to say the same things that he's been doing and saying. And chapter 10 is interesting. It is basically a speech of Jesus that we can all listen to. This whole chapter is pretty much Jesus talking to his disciples. I want you to think of it like they're in a house and we're all in the flower beds outside, crouching down, and the windows open, and we're eavesdropping on what Jesus is saying to his disciples inside the house. That's what it's like. We're listening through the window. And what we're going to hear is the commanding officer preparing his troops and sending them out into the world. This here in Matthew 10 is a strategic moment. Jesus goes on to tell his disciples to go. He tells them where to go. He tells them how to go. He tells them what to say when they get there. He tells them what it will be like as they go. He warns them of the risks and dangers of going. And he very gently and graciously anticipates their fear and gives them encouragements that are designed to fire their boldness and courage in going. So sometimes when I preach, I, I come to church thinking, I, I, today, I don't have anything to say to you today that you don't already know. There's nothing clever in what I want to say today, but this is important, and it is a great reminder. So I'm not going to be clever today and tell you things that you don't already know, but hopefully... I'll remind you of some things that you already do. First of all, I want to establish something that should be patently obvious. 
very simple, and, it, and it's this. Christianity has within itself a dynamic outward impulse. I, I've tried to draw it graphically there. You like my artwork? It's very expansive. Christianity has within it a dynamic impulse that goes outward. There's impetus here. There's movement here. There is an inner drive and a compulsion to reach people with the tremendous message of the good news that they need to hear. Christianity has within itself a kind of engine that is constantly providing an outward force. What do, what do engineers call that? Outward force. Where's Richard? He's an engineer. Centripetal force. The, the Christianity has within it centripetal force. There you go. You haven't learned something there. Um, but actually, it's not an engine. That, and it, that's much too impersonal. And this here is much too personal to describe it like a machine. The Bible describes the history of this world as the story of God himself moving towards humanity. It's more than that even. Let, let me just show you another little picture. It's a little bit cheesy. You'll get the point. The Bible says that God is love. One of the reasons we know that is because the great mystery in the Bible is that God, one God, who exists eternally in three distinct personalities, not three gods, one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and for eternity they have been head over heels in love. God has never been lonely. He's never been bored. And even the very creation that God has made is really the colourful, imaginative overflow of a love story. But the story of the Bible is not just of God moving towards humanity, but of him actually entering the human race. Because God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was born into our human race. God is not just moving towards us. In the person of Jesus, he has become one of us. So the Bible can rightly say in one place, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. But then Jesus can also rightly say, in addition to that, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And here we see it. Jesus sends the twelve. That is precisely what's going on here in Matthew's Gospel. Verse 1 says that Jesus called his twelve disciples to him. Matthew here introduces us to 12 individuals. We're given their names. Peter is always the first in the list. Judas Iscariot is always the last in the list. He's pretty famous, isn't he? As the one who betrayed him. Matthew actually says that in verse 4. But these 12 names come in six pairs. 
The first two are brothers. In fact, we've met five of them. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus is on the shore of Lake Galilee and he sees some fishermen casting their nets into the lake. I went to the Sea of Galilee earlier this year and was on a boat on the lake. It's not hard to imagine this scene. Two pairs of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And in chapter 4, Jesus goes up to them and says, follow me. And from now on, I'll make you catch people, not fish. I'm not sure what fish are in the Sea of Galilee. It's not sea bass or pike. I, I don't know what fish are there. Jesus said to them, I don't want you to catch fish anymore. I want you to catch men and women. And then in chapter 9, we met Matthew, the tax collector, the outcast, the traitor, the Jewish man who's collecting taxes on behalf of the evil Romans. Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. He got up and followed Christ. The other seven names in this list, we don't know a great deal about. But it does seem like the number 12 is important. It's, it's important enough for these men that when Judas commits suicide later, they actually find a replacement to make the number back up to 12. I, I can't help thinking that there were 12 tribes in Israel. And this is Jesus' way of saying, this, what I'm doing now, is like Israel Mark 2. There were 12 tribes, and I'm going to pick 12 disciples. These men are the eyewitnesses of Jesus, and they will later become the foundation of the New Testament church. So, in verse 6, Jesus says to these 12 men, go. In verse 7, he says, as you go. In verse 16, he says, I'm sending you out. In verse 27, he says, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim it from the rooftops. And again, I want to remind you of where the Gospel of Matthew ends. It's all very local here in Galilee, in this chapter. But this mission will eventually go viral. It will go global. So after his death and resurrection, Jesus meets his disciples for one last time. And before he ascends back to where he had come from to take his place as the risen, exalted king, his parting words to these men, 11 of them, were these. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I hope you can see the outward movement here that begins with God. Matthew wants us to overhear from the floor beds, through the window, Jesus saying, go. The watchword of Matthew's narrative here is go. Jesus is saying, I'm sending you. 
what happened? I, I want to suggest to you that the world was changed. This little band of uneducated men, by the power of Christ, changed the world. I would love to discuss what I mean by that. But the historic fact is that this good news from God through Jesus to people had spread right around the Mediterranean within 50 years. And within 300 years, despite periods of intense persecution, this gospel had actually overcome and displaced a brutal and pagan Roman Empire. I just want to digress for one moment. Is that okay? I want to, I want to suggest something to you. Our modern culture believes and tells a lot of lies about the birth of Christianity. Christianity, for example, did not spread in the first century because people were superstitious, gullible, or stupid. I, I want to suggest to you that the historic fact is that Christianity spread despite opposition because it actually worked. Our culture believes that Christianity is repressive and irrational and anti-scientific and limiting and restrictive to human freedom. It is mythical and fanciful. It has caused no end of wars and strife. What we're told now is that this world would be a better place if all this talk of faith was pushed out of the public sphere and only practiced in private. In fact, better still if we got rid of it altogether. I want to suggest to you that this is spin and propaganda. And the truth is that the Christian gospel has shaped to a very large degree even our assumptions about freedom, justice, mercy, compassion, love, forgiveness, all of these things we take for granted while forgetting where they came from. The Roman Empire wasn't like any of those things. It was weak to be merciful until Christianity exploded in the first century. I want to suggest to you that our culture actually wants all the benefits that Christianity brings but denies the Christian gospel that empowers them. I've got some apple trees at home and this is like trying to pick fruit off our apple tree after we've chopped the trunk off. You can't pick the fruit if the trunk isn't there. And this mission that began with Christ through his chosen 12 disciples is still going on. Jesus still calls his believing people now to go. And we live in a culture that is saying, be quiet. No one believes this stuff anymore. 
Don't you realize that? We've moved on. And there's a great conflict there, isn't there? Jesus says, go. Our culture says, be quiet. I hope you can see that these words of Jesus are so incredibly relevant. And as we eavesdrop on Jesus' words here, I want you to see that the church of Jesus in every age is meant to be moving outwards in mission. The church is not meant to be afraid of the world. The church of Jesus isn't meant to just copy the world or become like the world. If the, if the church just copies the world, it may as well not exist. There is a dynamic outward impulse here from God in love through Jesus for the church to go and boldly speak good news into a world that doesn't want it. Jesus says here, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. I've labored this because otherwise chapter 10 would not make any sense to us now in Rotherham in 2016. But it is relevant. It's hugely relevant. So here's what I'd like to do. We're, we're, God willing, we're going to spend two weeks looking at this chapter, or, or I'm going to spend two weeks looking at this chapter, and then Richard is going to look at the last bit in week three. And what I'd like to do over these next two weeks is very simple. Today, I want to think about some of the assumptions behind this kind of Christian mission, foundations of mission, if you like. And next time... We're going to think of some of the characteristics. We'll think a little bit more practically about some of the instructions Jesus gives here. Some of them are pretty weird, but we'll have a look at what applications we can draw out. So this week we'll think big about foundations. Next week we'll think more about the characteristics of Christian mission. Does that make sense? Great. So, part one today, foundations. Now, of course, I should say, I'm, I'm looking for a response here. You, you know that, don't you, when, when I preach? This is not just an intellectual exercise to kind of tickle your ears. I want you to think very carefully today, how does this apply to me now here in Rotherham? It's so great to have such a diverse group here and you are all so very welcome. If you're a Christian today, I hope these messages will encourage you and fire you. And if, and if you're curious, perhaps not yet a Christian, I hope you will see something of how compelling Jesus is and hear him calling you to himself too like these disciples of old. So, let's say, dive in. I've got um, a number of points, but they're all quite simple. Number one, Christian mission is necessary. Why? 
because people in this world are spiritually needy. When you think about it, this is totally obvious, isn't it? There would be no need for a mission to people if those people were not in need of something. Does that make sense? The reason Christian mission is necessary is because people in this world, you and I, are spiritually needy. I have to start in a hard place. But it should be obvious, I think, that the reason God is on a mission is because something's very wrong with, with us. And there's a class here straight away. But first of all, our culture, I think, tells us that we're all inherently good and that we should look inside of ourselves to find that goodness and learn to overcome our bad tendencies. Secondly, I think we do tend to live quite comparative lives as well. So we say to ourselves, I I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not a criminal, and I'm not as bad as those people over there in that group. And there's this whole mass of humanity in the middle that are not perfect, but not really bad, but we're all kind of together in this kind of 99% in the middle. We've already heard Jesus saying in Matthew's Gospel, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And the Bible seems to me to strike an amazingly consistent note when it describes human nature. On the one hand, incredibly, we are taught that every human being is unique and precious and has dignity, is created in the image of the living God. But on the other hand, we're taught in the Bible that this image this good and glorious image has been vandalized and defaced. It seems that humanity is, is, is a messy mixture of both glorious achievement and profound brokenness. I think the Bible captures these ideas in a number of ways. I just want to pick up on a, on a couple of pairs of words. Um, Think about these, uh, these words, rebellion and rupture. I, the Bible very clearly diagnoses our main spiritual need as stemming from our refusal to love and worship God as our good creator and our determination to go our own way and defy him. Our first parents rebelled against God and ever since our relationship with God has been what we might call ruptured. And the root of our problem spiritually is not our environment or our education, but actually our own hearts. In the end, we all want to be our own gods. And the story of human history is that a great divorce has taken place in which we are the guilty party. God has not treated us badly But we have blasphemed him. And that other pair, desire and destiny, the problem is that this isn't a one-time issue. We were created to know and love God, be satisfied in him. Now I think it's fair to say that nothing satisfies us at all. It seems like humans are, are insatiable 
in their desires for all kinds of substitute little gods. Some of them are more respectable than others. Some people even try to replace God with religion, as long as it means that they're still in charge. But the truth is that we're all searching to find that elusive something that will make everything click. We're all different. The pursuit takes different forms, but it is marked by restlessness. One of the great tragedies of all of this is that we don't even seem to realize our true condition. And that is why the Bible is so helpful, isn't it? It pierces our darkness. It diagnoses carefully and accurately what is wrong with us. It's painful but necessary. And the reason I speak of destiny here is because this rebellion and rupture, these mixed up desires, have eternal consequences. Jesus himself here speaks in this very passage of the awful prospect of a hell to be avoided as well as a heaven to be gained. In this passage, he speaks of his fellow Jews as lost. In verse 15, he speaks of a day of judgment to come in the future. Jesus believed that one day all of us will stand before God. And if we don't realize the danger and spiritual bankruptcy of that prospect, we'll certainly understand it then. So the mission of Jesus is necessary. Why? Because we are spiritually needy. One poetic person said this, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an informer. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been entertainment, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was salvation. Therefore, God sent us a saviour. The reason God is on a mission is because we humans are very needy. I don't think we're very good at being needy. I don't think I'm very good at being needy. Part of our problem is that when we feel shame or guilt, it actually makes us avoid God and one another even more. It's hard if you feel broken to come out into the open unless you can be sure that you are safe and loved. So here's my next point. Christian mission is necessary because people are spiritually needy. Christian mission is possible because God loves people and desires their ultimate good. The word gospel literally means good news. And this is the essence of it, isn't it? Make no mistake, if God were not loving all of us would be lost forever. But the fact that God is love means that we can come to him. Even our deepest, darkest selves can be redeemed and healed and restored and forgiven. 
the reason Christian mission is possible is because God loves his rebellious creatures and has come to make peace with them. That's the gospel. God loves those who have lived as his enemies. During this past week, I stumbled across a video, which we're going to show in a moment, and it asked the question, what is the gospel? And I've got two reasons for showing you this. One, that's a great question. And the other is, this video is by an American guy, and I thought I would break you in gently. Luke's coming next week, and you're going to have to get used to his American accent. He's not quite as loud as this guy is in this video. We've turned it down a little bit. He gets very passionate when he preaches, as I sometimes do, I suppose. But um, let's uh, listen to this guy answering a question. It's only two minutes. I don't normally do this. This is an American guy called Matt Chandler, and the question is, what is the gospel? Let's, uh, let's watch. The gospel is that there is this infinite, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful creator God who created all things for his glory. And you and I have belittled that, belittled his name, belittled his glory. Every one of us have at one time or another, or actually currently, believe that our way is better than God's. We fail to acknowledge, give him glory for the gifts he's given us. We question his rule and his authority, while at the same time doing that with the brain he gave us and holds together, and the lungs and the air that he gave us to breathe with. This is the great blasphemy of the universe. So we've all belittled God, and God being just right and holy is not going to allow the belittlement of his name. God then, not being able to spare wrath, sends Christ in the flesh and crushes him. And in so doing, pours out his wrath against the children of God onto the Son, killing him. Then God raises him from the dead, and that same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in those who would believe. This is the gospel. That you and I have right standing before God, not by our efforts, not by our works, not by our skill, not by whether or not we cuss or don't cuss, drink or don't drink, watch this, don't watch this, do this, don't do that, justified before God by the cross of Christ alone. Your lust, you're not going to be able to fix it. Your bitterness, you're not going to be able to fix it. Your rage, anger, those deviances that have been following you around, you don't possess the power of life and death. You can't resurrect anything. Christ can. That's the good news. That's why we don't celebrate us. That's why we continually celebrate Him. We boast in the cross and the cross alone. The same power that is at work in raising Christ from the dead is at work in me and work in all who believe. This is the gospel. see that Christian mission is only necessary because we are spiritually needy and it is only possible because God has shown his great love to the world by sending his son to be our saviour I want to just make 
one further point about the gospel. Christian mission is satisfying because Jesus is the ultimate goal of it. I want to ask you this question. What is the point of all this talk of salvation? We, we can perhaps sense that we need saving but from something. But what are we being saved for? What are we being saved to? What is this all for? One writer says this. There is nothing in itself that makes forgiveness of sins good news. Whether being forgiven is good news depends on what it leads to. You could walk out of a courtroom, innocent of a crime, and get killed on the street. Forgiveness may or may not lead to joy. Even escaping hell is not itself the good news we long for, if we find heaven to be massively boring? It's a really good question, isn't it? We can see something of what we're saved from, but what actually are we being saved to? And why does the Bible call it good news? The writer goes on to say this, the gospel is the good news that the everlasting and ever-increasing joy of the never-boring, ever-satisfying Christ is ours freely and eternally by faith in the sin-forgiving death and hope-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ. The goal of Christianity is not to be healthy or wealthy or safe or problem-free. In the end, you will get all of that as a byproduct of the real deal. Let me show you what the end of the gospel is. Jesus prays in John chapter 17, verse 24, this prayer for you, for his people. And he says this, Father, what does he want? I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see what my glory. The ultimate end and goal of Christianity is for you and I to be set free to see and appreciate and love and treasure and admire and marvel at Jesus himself. Can I say this? The whole point of your life and my life is to see the glory of Jesus and go, wow, isn't he amazing? That is the point of life. And the reason we're so disappointed is because we've been made for that and we try to satisfy ourselves with all kinds of other trivial substitutes for that. The reason Christ died, the reason he forgives your guilt, the reason he calls you is not primarily for you to be something but for you to see and know something that will so satisfy the deepest yearnings of your heart that you won't need anything else. You will have arrived at the pinnacle of human existence when you see and enjoy him. 
the end goal of this gospel is that Christ gives himself to you. He is both the author of Christianity and he's the end of it, the never-ending end of it. Sometimes when we talk about the gospel, I think we talk in terms of it being very narrow and in negatives. I wanted to add this third point. The, The Christian mission is satisfying because the point of the gospel is to bring you to Jesus. The point of Christian mission is not to moralize people but to bring people to the soul-satisfying joy of knowing Christ. I think it was Paul, wasn't it, who said, oh, I'm digressing here from my notes, but I'm getting carried away. Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, very clever man. said this, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He was a religious man, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He had it all. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that it comes from God and is by faith. Christian mission is necessary because people are spiritually needy. Christian mission is possible because God loves people and it is satisfying because Jesus is the ultimate goal. Still got three more though. Number four, Christian mission, I want to suggest to you, is certain. I couldn't think of a better word for that. Because... God is in total control. I I wanted to say a lot under this heading, but um, time prevents me from spelling this out completely. Here's a summary. I just want you to understand that God is not just having a go at saving the world, as if he might fail somehow. This, this God is not just having a bash at saving people. All of his plans will come to fruition. No one can ultimately thwart the purposes of God in his world. He is not surprised or frustrated by evil. No one can back God into a corner or tell him something that he doesn't already know. And let let me just bring some evidence to back up this claim. First of all, God's purposes in history have succeeded. All the preparations that God has made, all the promises that he made, the whole of the Old Testament that we have here, 
All the promises he made to Abraham and many others all through the Old Testament have all perfectly come to pass. And they've culminated in Jesus Christ, his son, coming into the world at exactly the moment that God planned it. Secondly, Jesus himself succeeded in everything he came to do. He achieved every single thing he came into this world to do, even at the cost of going to the cross. It looked like he'd lost. His disciples were crushed and ran away, but even his death was part of a glorious plan. Jesus won, it seems, by losing He saved his people by dying in their place. Every single thing Jesus was asked to do, he did it. And even on the cross, as Jesus was about to die, he pulls himself up on the nails and he cries out in a loud voice, it is finished. That is not a cry of defeat or misery. That is a cry of completion and of victory. This is Jesus in the moment of his deepest agony, saying, I did it! Christian mission is certain because God is totally in control. Jesus once said to his disciples in John's Gospel, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. (laughs) You're right there, Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. Take heart, guys. I have overcome the world. It's a mess, isn't it? But no one can stop him. And thirdly, God's purposes have succeeded. Christ has succeeded. God promises that the gospel itself will ultimately succeed. Later on in Matthew, chapter 16, Jesus makes an astonishing statement when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That's confident talk, isn't it? Jesus said on a different occasion, all those that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. In other words, all those who are to be saved will be saved. God's purposes are secure. God has planned it. Jesus has delivered it. And all of his good purposes will come to pass. For sure, there are seasons of apparent success and failure. But this whole project is in the hands of God himself. And God has no enemy that can prevent him doing what he pleases. There's no possibility of him failing. Even in this passage, Jesus speaks of the sovereign control and care of the Father over all creation. Did you notice that lovely verse, verse 29? Jesus says to his disciples, we'll talk about this more next week, and not too And not two sparrows sold for one pea. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. 
when we were on holiday recently, there was a funny little bird that had snappy little legs. And Jane kept trying to, she said to me, get a photograph. Every time I went near, it ran off. And I was trying to zoom in. I did get one. It was a bit blurred. This strange little lanky bird with snappy legs. And it made me think of that when I read about these two sparrows. As that little bird was just trotting about on its snappy little leg. Jesus is saying here, even a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without God the Father willing it. He is in control. This is a deep foundation for Christian mission. It is not all on human shoulders. In a way, <laughs> can I say this in the church? In a way, this is the one horse you can back and know that it'll win. This is a cause and a project that you can give your whole life to and none of it will be ever in vain. Jesus doesn't promise in this chapter that it'll be easy, but he does promise that all of it is in bigger hands than ours. He is the sovereign Lord who rules over all creation and all of history and his gospel purposes are the ones that will prevail in the end. Number five, I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself now, but this is the balance that there is in the Bible. Christian mission makes progress in this world as believing people pray and are, and are willing to go. I've tried to say a few things to motivate you this afternoon. The desperate need of people all around us, the incredible love that God has shown us in the gospel, the prospect of being satisfied eternally with the glory and beauty of Jesus, the expectant hope of seeing the gospel ultimately triumph by God's power. But here is another amazing thing, if those four were enough. God does his work in this world through his believing people. The way God works, or if you like, the means that he uses is the faithful praying and going of his people. You remember that from the end of chapter 9, don't you? If you were here last week. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Pray. Talk to God about it. Ask him. And when Jesus says the workers are few, it makes me want to laugh that. Up to this point, you could actually say there have only been two workers. John the Baptist on his own, and then Jesus for a bit. When Jesus says the workers are few, he's like, it's me and him. And Jesus is like, guys, the harvest is ripe. People are needy. And it's a call to pray. Ask the Lord. One writer says this, having observed this tragic situation, the harvest is great, the workers are few or two. Jesus doesn't weep and grieve, but he asks for prayer. Faith responds to the crisis by turning towards God. 
And as another writer says, far from making the outcome dependent on man, prayer is the means commanded by the Lord for achieving his saving purposes. God hears and answers your prayers. And more than that, he uses the hard work of his people as they go out to serve him in this world. In the very next chapter, they become the answer to their own prayer. Father, send workers into the harvest field. Then Jesus says, come here guys, I'm sending you. If you don't want to go, don't pray, because you might be the answer to the prayer that you pray. That's what happened to these guys. God is in control, but the way he achieves his purposes in the world is through the willing involvement of his believing people. Jesus, we pointed it out already, Jesus says here that he sends his disciples out like sheep among wolves. And the great miracle is that as they do that, some of the wolves become sheep. What greater incentive could there be to sign right up to this mission? The God who doesn't need anything graciously condescends to invite us to participate in his plans for this world and even our communities, even for Rotherham. What greater purpose can you find for your life anywhere beyond this? Oh, time's gone. The last said there were six. Here's, here's the last one. I've separated this because I want to close with a challenge here. This is my last point, I promise. Christian mission is important because our eternal destinies are at stake. Let's just get back into Matthew chapter 10. We've been a big, big picture today, but in Matthew chapter 10, in these verses... Jesus introduces the possibility of opposition. He introduces the possibility of a lack of welcome for his messengers as they go. And he says something incredible to these disciples. When they go to tell people the good news, this is a significant spiritual moment of decision for the people who are listening. Verse 14. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Jesus says, go, and when people don't listen to you, actually the truth is, they're rejecting me. And one day, it will be worse for them than Sodom and Gomorrah was like the epitome of wickedness. Jesus says to them, the most wicked thing that anyone can ever do in this world is to say no to Jesus who loves them. The worst thing you can do in this world. Everything else can be forgiven. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been. But you can't turn your back on him 
and say no and shake your fist at him when he offers you his love and kindness. I do want you to see that the impetus behind Christian mission is one of proclamation. We talk a lot in our church here about preaching. We, we do a lot of preaching. You're very patient to listen to it. Matthew talks a lot about preaching. John the Baptist did it. Jesus did it. Now he sends his disciples to it. Why? Because preaching is like one of those old-fashioned tongue criers who are ringing a bell and saying, Oh yeah, oh yeah, you might as well blow a big trumpet. God is sending men and women out into the world to proclaim good news. God is good. And sin and death and hell are defeated by our King, Jesus, through his death and resurrection. And as these men go, the saddest thing is when people go, Jesus tells his disciples that people who fail to recognize his messengers are basically failing to recognize him and their guilt will be on their own heads. Sometimes people, I hear people say, oh, I wish God would speak to me. And I think one day God will say, I was and I did. I sent you preachers and teachers I gave you a Bible. I was with them as they loved you and worked hard to open the scriptures to you, present Christ in all his beauty to you. Were you listening? Friends, do not underestimate the mission of God in this world. Your eternal destiny depends upon this mission. Please hear his call and come and follow the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the gracious intention behind it. We thank you so much that you are not some kind of tyrant or monster. Father, we confess our need to you. And we confess that we need you to be our saviour. We thank you for Jesus who came into this world, the God-man who died and rose again and ascended. Father, we pray that this great message of good news, this great Christian mission would so captivate our hearts that we would give our lives to Christ and that we would give our lives to this project in this place. We pray in Jesus' name.